The way that the coronavirus has travelled quickly uh, relative to SARS tells you, you you can't just shut off the flow of people and the industrial connections that come with that like that. We've been led to believe that industrialization has, on the whole, been a good thing for society. But you have to wonder whether we're pushing the boundaries here and do we fully understand what we're coming into contact with. We are in the Tiger Hall with Daniel Moss, a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and he's been a journalist for over two decades working on four continents. You built Economics News at Bloomberg News into what it is today, Daniel, a powerhouse of reporting and editing. And you write primarily about Asian central banks, markets and policy, regularly being called upon to share insights on Bloomberg TV and on stages all around the world. So, Daniel, we're going to be talking about how an epidemic impacts an economy. Could you start by explaining what's the best overall quantifiable way of measuring how big a dent is, if any, that a virus has? Well, thanks, Nadia. And first of all, it's great to be here uh, at Tiger Hall. So how does an epidemic affect an economy? You know, you might hate this answer, uh, but it depends. It depends on the size of the economy. It depends on the nature of the virus. It depends on how long the epidemic continues and it depends on what's going on with that economy's trading partners and what's going on in the global economy generally. So there are an array of factors. So how about we take one example, which had a certainly had a really big impact. It was SARS, which was in the 2002 and 2003 period. What did we learn from the impact of that? We got an early glimpse that what happens in China, economically, politically, socially, does not stay in China. Let's look at some of the raw numbers. Uh, Let's talk about gross domestic product which is generally defined as the sum of all goods and services produced in an economy. And China's economy, at the point SARS hit, was on a tear. China's economy was basking in the halo of its recent entry to the World Trade Organization. The era of globalization was in full swing. China's economy was growing more than 10% each quarter. So what we saw in the second quarter of 2003, which is really the period where SARS, in retrospect, peaked. So China's pace of economic growth went from an absolutely scorching 11% and change uh, to about 9%. Now, that's a drop of two percentage points uh, in GDP, not to be sneezed at in an economy that size. Now, the second thing, Nadia, that has to be said is China bounced back quickly after that second quarter and the country went on producing double-digit growth uh, until the global financial crisis hit in 2007-2008. China's growth peaked in early 2007 at 15%. Now, there's not many economies that can grow at 15% uh, that are the size of China's. So we saw a very quick bounce back. That was aided by a couple of things. As I said, global capital and investment was still 
uh, flocking toward China. You know, China developed this reputation as, you know, the workshop of the world, the exporter of the world. Uh, that was very much in swing then. The other thing that happened is the global economy, uh, of which China was both a vital part and which it also benefited from, was in an upswing. So if you recall, in the early 2000s, we had a relatively shallow downturn, which was the result of the bust, the dot-com bust, and a couple of things that flowed from that, and activity was interrupted after 9-11. But after that fairly shallow recession, global growth was picking up. That helped China. That helped China's partners recover from SARS. Global growth, again, peaked just before the financial crisis, you know, approaching 5 or 6%. That's a far cry from where we are now, where global growth is basically flatlining at around 3% a year. So it depends what, if you take SARS as an example, it's not only what's going on in the place where the epidemic is centred, but how that place interacts with the rest of the world. So what key lessons can government use in this present day in order to deal with such uh, epidemics? Well, that's potentially a thorny subject. So one of the ways in which epidemics uh, affect an economy is behavioural. How does the behaviour of consumers and businesses get shaped by the information they receive about the epidemic? Now, political systems in different countries operate under different sets of assumptions and different incentives. What historical studies that I've seen of the SARS era have shown is that the more credible the information is perceived to be, then the more informed decisions by consumers, whether it's to go ahead with a holiday, whether to skip dinner and a show or stay home, or businesses, what to do with their staff, what to do with that extra assembly line they may be in the process of constructing, what information do they have about the epidemic, and can it be considered credible? Uh, those things are absolutely key. You know, the Asian Development Bank, I was just looking through this uh, the past few days, late last year published a retrospective study of SARS, you know, and it broke down the reaction to the virus uh, into a couple of categories. There's the direct stuff, which is, okay, what is the cost of healthcare? What is the cost of government spending to offset requirements of the population? And, you know, there are days lost, you know, mortality, unfortunate things like that. Then there's a sort of an indirect or second round effect, which is, you know, what decisions are consumers making about the things they can, can control while they're well and while they're alive? What this ADB study found was that in most instances, you know, people didn't really have access to information that they could trust or they were basing their economic decisions on fear rather than rationality. For example, Surveys taken indicate that people in Hong Kong, for example, or in Taiwan, felt like they had a much, much, much greater chance of contracting SARS or succumbing to SARS than the data subsequently showed. So, you know, the conclusion, one conclusion that can be drawn from that is, look, 
are you going to trust data? Are you going to trust experts? Or are you going to trust your own instincts? Now, we all want to make informed decisions. Data is at the core of informed decision-making. But in real time, Nadia, if you've got a decision to make that day, you know, in some ways, you know, skipping the holiday or uh, not going to the cinema and staying home with Netflix, uh, if the alternative in your mind is do I go out and contract the virus and become gravely ill? Well, then you might think, you know, that's a pretty sound decision to make. Stay home. Why eliminate the risk? But uh, in retrospect, you need not have done that. You probably would have gone out and been fine. Now, this is all retrospective and we look at all this stuff with hindsight. Hindsight's great. You get twenty twenty vision. Uh, but it does show that the most informed decisions are made when people have access to credible data and that they consider it credible. So, Daniel, let's bring the conversation to a very relevant topic that is plaguing us uh, in this present day, and that is the spread of the coronavirus, which originated from China. I think you'll agree with me that the world is a very different place now. China's role in the economy has completely evolved and transformed since the outbreak of SARS in 2003. So what are your thoughts on how the impact on economies today are? Well, I'll clear my throat, Nadia, by saying there's a lot we don't know. Having said all of that, let's look at China's economy and its role in the world economy. So in 2003, China was a significant chunk of the global economy uh, and a growing chunk. However, nothing compared with what it is today. China's economy right now is about eight times as large. China has become the world's largest manufacturer. It's become the world's largest exporter. China is the largest source of tourism or one of the largest sources of tourism for many countries in Asia and beyond. Many more airlines have direct flights to and from China. Chinese companies are more active on the world stage. They're more active in this region. So the degree to which China matters is just you know, several magnitudes greater than was the case in 2003. Yeah, yeah, and it's you absolutely made, phenomenal. And you made a very good point. You know, China back in 2003, you know, accounted for 3 4 5% of global, of global GDP. It's 17% now, yeah, is that a, right? Yeah, that's right. It's approaching 20% now. Even just the pace of world growth, China accounts for 40% of that. So, you know it's going to have an impact Practically every economic official in Asia, Europe, North America has said it's going to have an impact. Uh, we just don't know what that impact is. If you extrapolate SARS and you say, okay, we lose a couple of percentage points of China's growth, that takes China's growth down to, you know, around 4%. Now, two percentage points is survivable when you're growing at 11%. If you're growing at 6%, which China is at the moment, and you take away a couple of percentage points from that, that starts to really matter. So more broadly, how can viruses change assumptions? So I think it gets back on a macro level, on a broad level, you know, 30,000 feet, to what we were just talking about. An entire development model, not just in Asia, but particularly in Asia, was based around becoming part of global supply chains, of manufactured goods, 
of capital of people. You know, when I was working in Sydney uh, in the mid-90s prior to taking up an assignment in Kuala Lumpur, you know, my colleague said to me, oh, you're going to KL? That's great. That's great. There's so much growth. It's fantastic. You know, you've just got to be up there. Asia's where the growth is. Nothing else matters. Well, that wasn't always the case. There was a financial crisis uh, in the region in 97, 98, uh, which brought with it in many instances uh, political upheaval. That was certainly the case in Malaysia and in Indonesia. Uh, And even when I was preparing uh, to come to Singapore for this job last year, a lot of my colleagues in the US were saying, "Ah, look, Asia is just the future of this company. It's the future of the global economy. It's the future of society. And that was a widespread view. And in many ways, it still is uh, justifiably so. However, it doesn't mean that there's all growth all the time. What goes up through its links with China can also deflate through its links with China. Uh, There's just no running away from this. China, once upon a time, used to be shorthand for exponential growth, justifiably. I don't think people would say it's shorthand now in quite the same way. A great deal of prosperity in this region has come from China's economic rise. You know, you reach a certain point where an economy becomes so big, it's just not going to keep rising at the same rate all the time. And, you know, we're seeing some of the downside of that now. Daniel, I'd like to get your thoughts uh, on this. How about the impact of social media on the economy in the context of an epidemic? Because certainly in 2002 and 2003, during the SARS outbreak, WhatsApp and Instagram and all these various social media platforms hadn't taken off as compared to now, which allows for hysteria to rise. And does that create some shortfalls as well? Yeah, I mean, this is the era of Twitter you know, the era of Facebook and all these things synonymous with the age of social media. Look, it's a great question. I think a lot of it gets down to this question of what information can you trust? Are you making informed decisions on the basis of credible data and credible information provided by credible sources or sources that you feel are credible? There's an awful lot of stuff out there on social media. And in some ways, social media seems designed for the inflammatory, designed for the sensational. You know, it's a tough issue for all of us. It's a tough issue for companies, individuals. It's a tough area for public policy as well. Yeah, it seems to be the case right now because I see a lot of posts about um, Chinese restaurants having to close down because people are too afraid to go to these restaurants. Um, And you can see it even more now because people are posting about it, tweeting about it. It seems that social media could have a little bit of of an impact here uh, as compared to before. For sure. Uh, and that impact can be for good or for ill. You know, a lot depends on, you know, who's pulling the trigger. And we all, you know, have people or organizations in our social media feeds that we like to get information from because we think they're credible or we think they're funny or they have, uh, you know, an area of expertise that we find interesting. You know, at the same time, you can't just shut this off. You know, Naji, you've raised an interesting point, which would probably make a great column. You know, the economics of social media uh, in the era of epidemics. You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm happy to contribute to that column uh, of yours. (laughs) Let me know what your conclusions are. 
we're just going to have to watch this space. You know, I think a lot of it gets back to how credible is your source of information and what's in that. So, Daniel, as the world becomes increasingly more and more globalized, do you think that we and governments and humans need to prepare for the possibility of of more epidemics? Nadia, great question. You know, underlying that, you know, is something very provocative but very important. I mean, we've been listening to this trendy trope uh, for the last couple of years that globalization's dead. Globalization's going into reverse. Deglobalization, slow globalization. The way that uh, the coronavirus uh, has traveled quickly uh, relative to SARS, you know, tells you, you you can't just shut off the flow of people and the industrial connections that come with that, like that, just because someone wins an election or just because Britain decides to leave the EU. Okay. This is as much a testament to the continuing force of globalization as anything else. When you look at advances in society in the past, say, 50 or 100 years, we like to think, or we certainly did like to think, that we've got it all figured out at this point. There have been tremendous advances in education, in medicine, in science and technology. Here in this region, many societies have become very, very prosperous. You know, as human society develops, you know, I think we've got to ask ourselves, you know, as we become, as humans, more urbanized, the industrial space and living space that we occupy continues to encroach on areas once inhabited almost solely by wildlife. And as agriculture uh, encroaches on more and more areas once the domain of wildlife, are we as a society, as a human species, going to become more exposed to viruses like this? You know, and again, we've been led to believe that industrialization has on the whole, been a good thing for society. I'm inclined to agree with that. But, you know, you have to wonder whether we're pushing the boundaries here and do we fully understand what we're coming into contact with. We might as well get used to the idea that it's important to prepare, prepare and prepare. You know, progress doesn't always march upward in a straight line. Economic growth doesn't always march upward in a straight line. As humans, we're going to have these thrills and spills. Now, in the first half of the 20th century, they were global warfare thrills and spills. This might be the new era of warfare. You're currently listening to a free Tiger Hall podcast. There are hundreds more like this on Tiger Hall. Download Tiger Hall from the App Store or Google Play and gain access to meaningful, bite-sized content from Asia's most successful leaders at brands such as Google, Facebook, and Alibaba. 